In Italy, they take their cuisine very, very seriously. And as a traveler, you get to enjoy the results. They take great pride in Italy and their food. Even if the governments are crumbling and the popes come and go, they're the best in the world at that, and they want to keep it that way. Our favorite Italian food connoisseur, Fred Plotkin, is here to guide us through the decadent dessert specialties of Italy. Plus, a guide from Sicily warns us to never, ever use a knife to cut up your pasta. That is really a no-no, because if you use the knife, that means there was the intention to kill the poor spaghetti. It was not an accident. And we find out how to find the freshest ingredients in Paris at one of the city's many specialty food markets. But you got to know where to shop and when. Every single neighborhood has one or maybe several open-air markets that happen on different days of the week. Have fun with your food in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find no shortage of good restaurants in Paris, but if you want to eat like a real Parisian, you need to visit the city's many open-air food markets. Packed with the freshest fruits, vegetables, cheeses, and other delicacies, these markets are where Parisians have been shopping and socializing for centuries. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we learn how you can find just the right ingredients in one of Paris's traditional markets, just right for building the perfect picnic or to whip up an authentic Paris-style meal of your own in your rented apartment. But first, if you're the kind of person who thinks dessert is the main course, Fred Plotkin's just the man you need to know. He's scoured the countryside of Italy for years, compiling his definitive guide, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. A self-described pleasure activist, Fred knows the value of sourcing seasonal local ingredients and the special dishes that each region of Italy is most proud of. Today, he joins us to take your calls at 877-333-RIC as we get a close look at the decadent and delicious desserts you'll find all across Italy. Fred, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you again. You write a book that I just consider the book for eating your way through Italy, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And first of all, when you write a book like that, do you go out and actually just have a list of things you want to eat? Uh, what is involved in, in writing a, a food guide to Italy? Every single thing in my book is something I've seen, tasted, smelled, or touched. And I do my book anonymously. And when Italians ask me, how come you speak such good Italian, I answer because I work in opera, which is true. And therefore, they never realize that I'm making notes about everything I'm seeing. I do know that every town has its own specialties, and I cover 504 towns in the book. And therefore, I go around sampling the same dish or the same cake in 10 or 15 different places and come up with a couple that I think are the best. Uh -huh. It's very fattening. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> well, I've got a chubby uh, Italian friend, and he says when him and his wife are making love, it's like two mozzarella balls. I still hope I'm spaghetti. Not <laughs> spaghetti, not mozzarella balls. <laughs> okay. Now, I know you're into fine eating, or not not uh, pretentious <laughs> eating, but quality eating. Does, yes. does you know the gourmet dimension or the, the quality dimension stop at the secondi, or can desserts be part of fine cuisine? Every food you put in your mouth should be something worth savoring and, frankly, worth the calories. In Italy, the classic dessert until very recently was fruit. Italian fruit is some of the world's best. But the Europeanization of Italy has meant that now in restaurants at the end of the meal, they actually want to serve you some kind of pudding or cake or something else that is a little more substantial than fruit. So what used to be specialties, things that would come around at Easter or Christmas, now appear on the menus every day. Okay, so that's sort of been mission creep there for the dessert course. I've got yes. friends in, in restaurants that seem very proud of their frozen fruit desserts. Well, a lot of those, frankly, are produced by two or three manufacturers, mm -hmm. the biggest being called Bindi, mm -hmm. and they're sent throughout Italy. The quality is very good. But I always look for the word uh, fata in casa, made at home, or artigianale, artisanal, which means that it's local. Can you trust because that when you see that? In almost every case, mm -hmm. because they take pride in it. Now, I always say, which casa? Ah. And if they say, we make it in the kitchen, I always say, well, who? Let me meet that nice person. And he or she comes out of the kitchen, and we chat about the desserts. And then I trust them that they they take great pride in Italy and their food. 
even if the governments are crumbling and the popes come and go, the Italians, they're the best in the world at that, and they want to keep it that way, even as everything else crumbles around them. Now, we've talked before about the importance of uh, being seasonal and knowing what the regional differences are. Does uh, seasonality and, and regional differences apply to dessert in Italy as well? To some degree, only when fruit is involved. Mm-hmm. Now, I always yell at Italians if they're bringing in berries from South America or South Africa because then they're rejecting seasonality. Mm-hmm. Italians are also really good at making wonderful preserved fruits, whether it's the frutta candita of Genoa, which is heaven, or the jams that come from the Alps in Tuscany that are delicious. One of the nicest things in Italy is a crostata, which is basically a jam tart. And depending where you are in Italy, it might be the citrus from Sicily, wonderful cherries from Rome called visciole, or berries up in the Alps. You know, that's interesting you say that because uh, when you go into a little mom-and-pop kind of restaurant, you're looking for that casalinga, right, that that home cooking. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems like you see a lot of preserves and tarts and stuff that are out to be seen. What do you look for? Is that something that you can actually spy with your eyes to see if there's anything worth getting excited about here? Well, they take pride in it. That's the point. By the way, if you ever see something called torta della nonna, grandma's cake, don't get it. (laughs) That's generic. Is that right? Because, oh, yeah. I mean, grandma, grandma's busy now. She's not making cakes, so therefore this is really trying to pull on a certain kind of nostalgia. So what's the name but again? Torta Tor- della Nona's Torta okay, Cake so. della Nona, Grandma Cake. Grandma's Cake. Is really by now just a commercial product and to be oh, avoided. that's too bad. Yeah. Sorry, Grandma. Oh, we're getting tips on how not to get uh, suckered into fake Grandma's Cakes here with Fred <laughs> Plotkin. Fred's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877 877- Three 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 seven four two five, and Donna's on the line in Jackson, Tennessee. Donna, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick and Fred. I had a question. Uh, my husband and I will be traveling on a cruise, and we'll be going from Venice to Ravenna to Bari to Sicily, Naples, and then up to the Cinque Terre at the end for our last time in Italy. But I was wondering, do desserts differ from north to south? And, of course, I'd like to know, do you have any special suggestions for things we shouldn't miss? Entirely. They're all listed in Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, but a few that I would point you to in Naples, which is a great dessert town, are something called pastiera, which used to be an Easter cake. It's made of wheat germ in a way, and it has rose water or orange water. It's very unusual. It's not sweet, but it's very, very delicious. It's just something you won't find elsewhere. What's the name again? Pastiera, P-A-S-T-I-E-R-A. In Sicily, I don't know if you're stopping there, in all of southern Italy, the lemons, the oranges are fantastic, and they go into a lot of baking and desserts. In Sicily and in Naples, but especially Sicily, there's something called granita, which in America is called Italian ices, but it has nothing to do with the gorgeous stuff you find in Sicily. Granita di mandorla, almond granita, is one of my favorite desserts in all of Italy. Another one is granita di caffè, coffee, or granita di limone. Ice cream in Sicily, gelato, is the best in Italy, and you should eat it every day, all the time. Oh, we do. This will be our fourth trip, so I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know what time you're going, but in Puglia, they have magnificent grapes. They have Moscato grapes, which tend to come in August and September and October, and they're incredibly perfumed. They're fragrant. They're beautiful. Also in southern Italy, figs, dried figs that are filled with almonds, with hazelnuts, with cocoa powder, sugar, cinnamon, candied fruit are very special. Fichi, F-I-C-H-I, are figs. Hmm. Venice has mostly cornmeal desserts because polenta is from there. So a lot of cookies and cakes are made with cornmeal. You're from the South, so you may know grits. It's a similar thing, corn cakes and so on, and they're delicious. Mm. Mm. Sounds good, Donna. You're going to have to do a lot of hiking to maintain there. And the cruises, I've been to a lot of those cruise ports, and they're very handy to the city. So as long as you're well-organized and you hit the ground uh, as soon as that gangplank goes down, you can leave the cruise crowd and be immersed in those cities and enjoy all those taste treats, no problem at all. Well, one, um, one problem we're 
having is trying to decide what to do in Sicily. Any suggestions? The, um, do you know where you're landing in Sicily? Yes, Catania. Catania, we don't okay. Know whether, yeah, we don't know whether to go to Taormina or Syracuse. Hmm. Okay, Taormina is the famous resort. It's very pretty. But my favorite city in Italy is Syracuse, which is gorgeous. You pass through slightly industrial zones to get there, but it has amphitheaters, it has wonderful temples, it has great city life, and the neighborhood to go to is called Ortigia, which is where papyrus first arrived in Italy. There are fantastic restaurants, including ones that serve fresh tuna, fresh swordfish, and if you can get near Siracusa to the town of Noto, N-O-T-O, the best ice cream in the world hmm. is from Noto. Wow. Oh, wow. All right. So then. that's where I would go. There you go, Donna. Have a great time. Thank you very much. Okay, happy travels. Bye-bye. Fred Putkin's definitive guide to the cuisines of Italy is called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Nancy's on the line in Marcuson, Wisconsin. Nancy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a question about gelato. And I was wondering, people say it's ice cream, but it isn't ice cream. And I'm allergic to ice cream, so do I need to take my lactate? Because is it really ice cream? Nancy, you live in the dairy state. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a graduate of the UW, so I know the area well. Gelato is milk-based. So if okay. you have any milk problems, you should not be having gelato. You can have sorbetto, which is sorbet, which is made of ice, and uh-huh. the fruit or the flavoring. Yeah. Okay. But not gelato. Is the sorbetto as um, loved and appreciated as gelato, or are you missing the whole magic of Italy's ice cream culture? No, you're not, because gelato and sorbetto are based on great flavors. So what you want to do is find the place that does not use artificial mixes but actually has chunks of fruit in the gelato or the sorbetto. So you see that this fig sorbet just came from the figs off the tree that's across the street from the from the store. That's the point. Okay. And uh, locals have been reminding me a lot of gelaterias are into grabbing the eyes of children by coloring their flavors to make them look more brilliant. And if you look for the mellow colors, that's a good chance it's uh, natural and actually Correct. flavored better. We'll continue in just a moment with the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler and with our tasty exploration of Italy's decadent desserts. We have links to Fred Plotkin's books and his online opera blog in this week's radio show details. That's at ricksteves.com. We'll also get an insider look at the importance of proper pasta appreciation in Sicily and a guide to some of the best neighborhood food markets in Paris. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Sono Virginia Agostinelli dall'Italia e viaggio con Rick Steves. I'm Virginia from Italy and that was Italian for I travel with Rick Steves. Viaggio con Rick Steves. Navigating the specialty food markets in Paris and a Sicilian lesson in respecting your pasta. That's coming up in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, 
We're taking your calls at 877-333-7425 for Fred Plotkin as we explore the sweets and treats you'll enjoy in Italy. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Paula's on the line in St. Simmons Island, Georgia. Paula, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, I have traveled in Sicily and in Italy, in southern Italy, and fell in love with the cannoli and the profiteroli for dessert. I'm into the sweets. I'm going to be in Puglia the last two weeks in May and wondering if there's a special sweet I ought to try there. This may sound a bit uncommon, but I stand by my recommendation. There is a cheese there called burrata which has arrived a little bit in America, but it does not work here. It has to be had fresh. It is a mozzarella with cream. It is sweet. It is sensationally delicious. And another thing I love in Puglia is fresh ricotta cheese served with a fruit preserve. Hmm. So in, in America, we probably would have jelly with cottage cheese, not nearly as good as this phenomenal thing. In Puglia, they have these fresh cheeses that really are the greatest desserts. Very good cookies and so on, too, and great bread baking, the best in Italy. But I love the cheeses of Puglia paired with fruit. Fred, when you talk about cheeses for dessert, is that like a, what we'd think of as a cheese course, or is that cheese with, with other sweets? There are regions that do cheese courses, especially Friuli Venezia, Giulia, Veneto, Lombardy, and Piemonte. But in the rest of the country, you'd have one of these sweeter cheeses as a dessert. Right. It's not that they add sugar, but they're very sweet because they're young and fresh cheeses, burrata being the one that's just heaven on earth. All right. Paula, good luck on your eating in Italy. Thank you. I'm sure I will have no problem finding something delicious. <laughs> Buon appetito. <laughs> Thank you. Our email's radio at ricksteves.com. And Bonnie in Parma, Italy, has emailed us. And uh, Bonnie writes, in Parma, that's her hometown, I love the Magdalenas, which are perfect for breakfast pastries. Everywhere else I've had them, they're vanilla muffins with a pastry shell. But in Parma, they have a dollop of prune or cherry preserves between the cake and pastry layer, and they taste amazing. In Naples, the best thing I ate was a hot sfogliatella riccia, divine. In Venice, it was the hot fratelli during Carnavale. If you happen to find yourself in Ascoli during the Christmas season, you got to try the frustingo, the most amazing chocolate fruitcake, calling it a fruitcake, while factual doesn't do it justice since most of us are prejudiced towards fruitcakes. This dessert should have its own classification. It's dense, chocolatey, and figgy at the same time, something like a cross between a brownie and a fig newton. Fred, sorry for my pronunciation there, but we got Magdalenas, we got the Sfogliatelli, the famous uh, pastry in Naples, and we got the Fratelli in Venice and the Frustino in Ascoli. Any comments on those? On all, of course. <laughs> Actually, a couple of letters missing from the, the dessert from Ascoli Piceno. It's called Frustingolo Marchigiano. It's a Christmas cake made with nuts, figs, honey, and candied fruit, and it is heaven. <laughs> it's rather intense. Ooh, say the name, and, and what's in it again? Frustingolo, Frustingolo. Which, okay. which means it's from the market. It's a Christmas cake, very important. This is an example of something that used to just be served at Christmas, but now is found throughout the year. Nuts, figs, honeys, and candied fruit. Gotcha. The frittelle, the fritters in Venice, are very good. They sort of land in your solar plexus, <laughs> though, and don't go further. Right. Whereas in Parma... Is that a nice way to the, say gut bomb, yeah? Yes. <laughs> The Magdalena, interesting, Parma was under France, so it's a cousin of the Madeleine from France. Okay. Except with the addition of jam, it's true. All right. And sfogliatelle in Naples are crunchy. They're filled either with almond paste or ricotta or plain. You make an incredible mess when you eat them, but it's worth it. And those are in these venerable cafes that you'll invariably stumble yes. into when you go through old Naples. And it's sort of, they're proud of it. You have it with your coffee there, and it's a beautiful experience. I recommend getting the minis fogliatelle because yeah. they taste the same and you don't make this total mess all over your beautiful Italian clothing. It is tough. All that uh, basically powdered sugar, right? Powdered sugar and, and crust that and crust, falls yeah. apart. Yeah. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Arthur's calling in from Bloomington, Indiana. Arthur, thanks for your call. Hi, Ray. Hi, Fred. Um, just one thing that I've been wondering about is whether you can find anything close to what you're describing, all those good things, anything that you can find over here in the States. 
one thing that you wouldn't want to miss in Italy that you can find here, that'd be great. A few of the packaged things come over. One of my very favorite desserts in Italy, it's one that people don't seem to know, is called torta sbrizolona, which means a crumbly cake. And it's made in Mantua. It's made of almonds, hazelnuts, butter, and flour, and that's it. And they're produced there and intended to be consumed with sweet wine. These are packaged. They can be found in the United States. I think it's called Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan, does mail order of them. Hmm. But if you can find a tortas brisolona, they're wonderful. They're plain, mm-hmm. but they're great. Well, that just reminds me of the joy of biscotti and Vinsanto, doesn't it? Yes. Oh, by the way, another thing for the caller, the greatest book that I can recommend if you want to make them yourself is called The Italian Baker by Carol Field. Even Italians use her book to discover how to make their own recipes. It's that good. Uh-huh. Well, thanks so much. There you go, Arthur. So make them at home. Bon appetito. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are drooling all across Italy here, talking about sweets uh, with the man who wrote Italy for the gourmet traveler, Fred Plotkin. Fred, you mentioned the uh, various granitas, the, the flavored shaved ice drinks. Rome has something that the locals love, the gratacheca. Is that right? Do you know about that? Gratacheca is, you know, I live in New York City, and somehow when the Cubans and the Puerto Ricans do it, I like it more. Yeah. It's basically shaved ice with flavorings. Yeah. It's good in Rome, but there are better things in Rome than that. I like it. It's just refreshing on the streets when it's really it's hot. It's refreshing and nice, but I, I would eat that in New York. Now, when you go farther south in the Amalfi area, people are crazy about their limoncello. Not only limoncello, but torta di limone, everything made of mm. lemon. You stop by one of those, you can picture these stands uh, on the Amalfi Coast where they've got a little pullout, and then these farmers are there with countless different kinds of incredible lemon. They're just into lemon in that culture there. They're huge. I mean, they're very helpful. And, and unlike most of the world, there are three lemon crops a year there. And therefore, they're in constant supply. It's not seasonal. And they're incredibly fragrant, and they're used in perfume, in laundry soap, in everything. But real lemon, not fake lemon essence produced in a lab. I met a farmer once, and he took me up into his orchard, and it was like, a, it was like an advertisement for the wonders of lemonade. He picked a lemon off of his tree, sliced it, squeezed it into a glass, put in some sugar and some ice, mixed it up, and drank it with a view of the Mediterranean. What's not to love? One of the beauties of Italy. <laughs> uh, Brad emailed us from uh, uh, Virginia, and Brad writes, My absolute favorite, an almond cookie covered with panna cotta-flavored gelato, covered in whipped cream, flamed with a blowtorch to make a crust like creme brulee. Uh, your mission as an eater? Find that cookie. Well, do you know what he's talking about there? I've never heard of that. That's... Uh... <laughs> Sounds a bit As over the, the top. Italians say ungepachke, it's a bit over the top. Fortissimo. Yeah. Or, or no, issimo. Don't Italians say issimo? Issimo, issimo. If something is over One the top. One thing I want to mention, though, the city of Trieste, I think, mm. is the best baking town in Italy. Hmm. People don't know that, but in part because of the Austrian-Hungarian tradition I was going to say, that's there. the one town with the Austrian-Hungarian... Uh, True. The bakeries of Trieste, but it's not just the strudel and the Austrian stuff, hmm. but local cakes called Pinza, Presnitz, Putitsa, Gubana. These are all yeast cakes that have nuts and grappa and all kinds of things in them. Heaven. Ah, really fantastic. That's near Treviso, isn't it? Uh, relatively near Treviso. Is that where tiramisu comes from? Tiramisu was invented in a restaurant in Treviso in the 1950s. It's not an ancient dish. Yeah, you'd think it was one that goes way back the way they present it to you, but it's just from this last generation. Well, I go back to the 1950s. <laughs> Historic. <laughs> so I see it as contemporary. Uh. But um, basically, it's made of mascarpone cheese, chocolate powder, ladyfingers, and coffee. And the coffee and the chocolate is meant to pick you up. Tiramisu is what it means. Pick you up. That's a pick you pick up. pick you up. Oh, or right. pick me up. Tiramisu. Tiramisu. Have a pick, pick me, up. me up. Oh, we say have a pick me up. We can just say have a tiramisu. Sure. Fred, let's finish it off with just, uh, you're in a restaurant, you've had a, a, a great meal, you're friends with the waiter, you thought the dinner was done, and now more stuff starts coming out. There's sweets and there's drinks. How do you navigate through all of that, and, and, and what's your favorite way to, to really linger over a great meal and, and let it be the event of the evening rather than just dining and dashing? In many parts of Italy, they produce dessert wines that are known as vino da meditazione, 
meditation wine. I love that. It sounds yeah. very zen. Oh, yeah. And it's found a bit all over the country, and it's you have to drink it slowly. You have no way around that. You take a sip, you meditate. Because it's Italy, they never rush you out of the restaurant, and therefore you can sit there and have a sip, maybe have a cookie. In Tuscany, I know they dip cookies into wine. Don't do that. Have your cookie on the side, have a sip of the wine, and just meditate. But then I always finish the meal with a coffee, espresso. And I like it when the when the chef and the waiters, they've done their work, and you're still there, and it becomes much more relaxed, and everybody's just enjoying, uh, well, dolce far niente, I guess, eh? Yeah. Well, the idea is that you are their guest. Hospitality is a wonderful concept. We in America can talk all we want about service, but there's a difference between service and hospitality. In Italy, Americans might find the service a bit sloppy, a bit slow. It's not. It's hospitable. They want to make you feel welcome, and that is the beauty of eating in Italy. That plus no music on the, on the restaurant speakers. Right. And if you're there at midnight and you're still having a good time, and they're probably happy you're still there, and, and they'll sit down and join you. Except in the north, where they say, Mascusi, Secure, <laughs> Finalmente. <laughs> One reason to be sure you go further south. I'm Rick Steves. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been eating our way through the sweets of Italy with our favorite Italian eater, Fred Plotkin, the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Since Sicily is one of the places where Italy's food traditions live on the strongest, let's check in now with a Sicilian friend from Catania to hear firsthand how seriously they take their cuisine. Tour guide Alfio Di Maro is one of the funniest Italians I know, and he joins us now with a very serious warning for visitors who haven't been raised with a proper respect for the staple of Sicilian life, pasta. Alfio, thanks for joining us. Grazie per avermi invitato. Give me a little education on proper approach to pasta in Italy. Well, you know, proper, when I think about pasta, the first thing that comes up to my mind it is spaghetti. You know, just spaghetti is the Italian shape, uh, the classical shape of pasta. You know, there are rules about spaghetti. You know, spaghetti is something that if you uh, grew up in Italy, you consider them part of the family almost. The spaghetti? <laughs> yeah, the so spaghetti. So when you were a little boy in Italy, uh, <laughs> you were growing up and spaghetti was your friend. Exactly. So your mom, when you were little, always was teaching you how to proper, you know, adjust the spaghetti. Uh, as a kid, I was watching my mom preparing the spaghetti, and my mom never even thought of breaking the spaghetti before dipping them in the, in the boiling water. So you have an image. You can look at the pot on the stove. Exactly. With the water, and no breaking the spaghetti. No breaking the spaghetti, okay. because you know spaghetti is almost a living thing. They have a soul. You don't want to damage them, so you dip them in the hot water. You wait a couple of seconds. So these happy little friends are melting into the exactly. hot water. Exactly, they're melting, totally melting. In fact, uh, scientifically, this is called glass consistency. You know, in the pasta you can bend it without breaking it. So that that is really the first rule. Then. You never, of course, rinse the spaghetti when they're cooked. This is something that sometimes people do. Some people do rinse the spaghetti, exactly. don't they? So that's breaking the law. Yeah, that's breaking the law, from the, from the good taste. Exactly, because it washes away all of the good things. Once the spaghetti is in your plate... Well, this is a big challenge for Americans, is how to eat the spaghetti properly. Yes, yes. Once it is in a plate in front of you, often when you go to Italian-American restaurants... Here, they serve the spaghetti with a spoon and a fork. In Italy, that doesn't happen because if you're Italian, they know that you you know how to use the fork. So you don't need need the spoon. The spoon is for people who do not know how to use the fork. Exactly. Exactly. That's why maybe, you know, Americans, they go to restaurants in Italy and they don't have any spoon because they are treating like locals. Okay, so I've got a big bowl of, a big plate of spaghetti. I've got my fork, but I don't have a spoon. That's normal. What do I do? What do you do? The best thing you can do is you just you pick up a few spaghetti, okay, two, three, four at the most, and then you twist them on the side of the plate, and by the time you twisted them, you have the perfect size for a bite. So you just you separate just three or four little exactly. friends of spaghetti. Yes. 
Now, if you stick, the, the most common error I see is that uh, tourists that sometimes they don't know how to do it, they stick the fork in the middle of the plate. And doing that, first of all, you're going to turn your white shirt in the Italian flag because you're spreading the sauce around and the basil leaves, maybe. <laughs> Red, white, and green. And That's green. Right. Yeah. Second, you're going to raise what I call an umbrella of spaghetti. And that is not really good. Actually, that is... It's opposite. true. It's frustrating. You stick that fork in the middle, <laughs> you've got yourself an umbrella. Yeah, you have a huge bite. And that is, you know, considered really not cool at all. And if the Italian police, the carabinieri, are passing nearby, they can be really upset for people, you know, with people that they don't know how to eat. And they can put you in jail. <laughs> so for something like it is a serious stuff. There's a big love for the spaghetti. Yeah. Something that is a little bit worse than this is to break the spaghetti with a fork. Oh, you don't break it. You never break it. You don't cut your spaghetti. Spaghetti is always, you know, one entity. So you have to eat it without breaking it. You don't want smaller pieces. Okay? So never use the fork to break the spaghetti. Just select a few of them, and that's a proper way to eat them. Okay? Now, there's something worse than breaking the spaghetti with a fork, and that is using the knife. Oh, so you don't, uh, many people will cut the entire exactly. mass of spaghetti into three oh, or four or five pieces. No, oh, no. that is really a no-no. Because if you use the knife, that means there was the intention to kill the poor spaghetti. It was not an accident that you... Premeditated you had, you, spaghetti exactly, murder. Exactly. Now, if that is the case and the carabinieri, the Italian police are around, they really get serious about that and they get your passport and they stamp it with a permanent record of SK, Spaghetti Killer. And then you cannot enter the country again. That stays in your record. You will never be allowed to enter the country again. Thank you so much, Alfio de Moro, for a little bit of uh, special skill for eating and enjoying spaghetti Italian style. My pleasure. Grazie. Prego. Buon appetito. Buon appetito a te. Viva Spaghetti. <laughs> Sempre. <laughs> we'll escape the food police of Sicily next with a stroll around the neighborhoods of Paris with the co-author of a snappy little guidebook to the city's dozens of open-air and covered markets. It's in these markets where you find vendors selling the city's freshest produce, meats, cheeses, and seafood. But most of them are only open for a few hours on designated days, so we're getting a little help from an insider. We're at 877-333-7425, and we're packing a tote bag to Paris. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When you're visiting a dynamic city like Paris for only a few days, there's a good chance you could miss out on the top-notch specialty markets that nearly every neighborhood hosts because it's usually only open for a couple of hours on a couple of days each week. But with the information that Dixon Long and Marjorie R. Williams have compiled in their pocket-sized guide to the markets of Paris, you can focus your energy on knowing just where the right markets are and actually get there when they're open. Joining us right now for an overview of the food markets of Paris is Marjorie R. Williams. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Wow, you! what a great job. You get to be an expert on the markets of Paris. I must say, it, it is a dream job. I feel so lucky to have spent the time there going to markets, crisscrossing the city with <laughs> that as my agenda. Now, in your book, there's two kinds of markets, basically. You've got the food markets and everything else. Lay the general terrain right now. Uh, how do you divide up the markets in your mind and in your book? Yeah, so the book covers over 120 markets within Paris, and that's within the actual boundary, the peripherique of of Paris. 
Of those 120 markets, about 90 of those markets are food markets, mm -hmm. and the rest of them are all other kinds of markets, flea markets, antique markets, book markets, bird and flower markets. But for the food markets, of those 90 or so food markets that we cover in the book, there are different kinds of food markets. There are the open-air neighborhood markets, street markets, which are pedestrian walkways devoted to markets, covered markets, and then a couple of really terrific food halls, gourmet food halls as well. Ooh, let's talk about that. Okay, so I think we'll focus on food markets here. So that's 90 of the okay. markets in Paris. And you've got the open-air markets, street markets, halls. What are the different kinds of food markets again? So there's the street markets. There are about a dozen of those street markets, that, mm -hmm. and those are these narrow cobblestone walkways with vendors selling their goods on the street markets. Mm -hmm. And then open-air neighborhood markets. That's the largest category. There are about 70 of those where every single neighborhood has one or maybe several open-air markets that happen mm -hmm. on different days of the week. And then there are covered markets. Mm -hmm. And the other category that I mentioned are gourmet food halls. There are two of those that we cover in the book. You mentioned the open-air markets, like there's 70 of them and every neighborhood's right. got one. Paris is like a collection of neighborhoods. And I would imagine yes. a good way to feel like you're in a neighborhood is just to make the scene at an open-air market. What are your guidelines for being part of a market in a neighborhood? Just an intimate chance to be a temporary Parisian. That's a great way to put it. I think of going to markets, first of all, as a lot of fun. You can taste great foods and, and often enjoy fun entertainment with musicians at some of these markets, especially on the weekends. But one of the best reasons to go to the markets is the chance for cultural immersion. You get to walk the streets and shop the markets the way the real Parisians do. These markets are not set up for the tourists. This is not a Disneyland version of markets. These are real, authentic places where people have been shopping for literally hundreds of years. And they become part of the rhythm of the neighborhoods. And so to go to these markets is, one way to think about it is you take a large and stunningly stimulating city like Paris, and when you go to the market, you get to bring it down to the scale of a particular neighborhood. And every neighborhood market reflects its neighborhood. Boy, that is so important to bring an otherwise overwhelming city down to a scale that you can settle into. You write in your book that markets are a good entree to experiencing French culture. Now, for Joe Tourist, who doesn't speak the language and is not as sophisticated about Paris, how on earth are you going to use a market to be an entree to experiencing French culture? Do you have a little guideline on what you can do to get your fingers dirty in the culture? Can you taste things? Uh, do you bring a shopping cart with you, a shopping bag? Or what are some little tips? Well, what if the first things, first of all, plan your day. And that's where the book is very helpful because it's organized by arrondissement. And you can combine going to a market with the other sightseeing that you might be doing. So if the Eiffel Tower is part of the agenda, there's a market that's not far from the Eiffel Tower. And this is a very good idea now because Paris has all mm -hmm. these districts. The, the French word would be arrondissement. And uh, you can know where your sightseeing agenda is for the day, and that may trump your market activities, but you'll know, okay, right. I'm going to be in the 7th or I'm going to be in the 14th. Right. And then you can cross-reference that with the market's guide and say, oh, there's going to be a market in the same district or arrondissement. So after you're done with the Clooney Museum or the Picasso Museum or, or seeing the Sacre Coeur, you'll know, okay, there's a little neighborhood market just around the corner, and there you can do your shopping and pick up a picnic and, and be part of the scene. That's exactly how we in intend this book to be used, as a way to help people access the markets and incorporate it with the other sightseeing that they'll be doing. The one piece of advice, though, I would give people who are combining it with other sightseeing is don't get to the markets too late in the day. Mm. Markets are at their best, especially with the food markets, at their best early early in the day while the, the pickings are still mm -hmm. the, the greatest and the displays are fresh. And... I really particularly enjoy going to the markets earlier in the day. So do plan other sightseeing around it, but but be mindful that after about one mm -hmm. thirty or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the markets are pretty much swept up and uh, almost disappear into the neighborhood again. It is amazing. You know, you could be in the morning and have this thriving market and come back at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's as if it did not exist. By the way, Marjorie, when, you're, when you are going to be mixing your market going with sightseeing, is it possible to buy a, a little carton of, of strawberries and a couple of uh, pano chocolates, and then when you go to the museum or whatever, lock it away in the locker at the museum and then munch on it later on in the day? 
Oh, if if you have that willpower, go for it. <laughs> you can, <laughs> right. you can, you can certainly well, you can buy eat half these it before the museum. But let's say, items. That's right. But, it wouldn't last you, for me until I got to the museum. But, but you do have those lockers, and I don't think they would yes. frown upon that. I would think they would think that's quite <laughs> impressive. You're, you're holding off on your pan au chocolate until after you've done the Syrah. Okay. Right. Or or you can buy a rotisserie chicken, or even mm. half of a rotisserie, or quarter of a rotisserie chicken. That's something that not a lot of travelers know that you can get these smaller amounts. Yeah. Oh, and it's point. already been cooked, and, and you can buy it with potatoes where the drippings from the chicken have been providing a lot of flavor for those potatoes, mm. and buy some cheeses. You can even buy wine at the markets and some fresh fruits and go have the most marvelous picnic or bring food back to the hotel room for a dinner and give your wallet a break. So I encourage people, even if you're staying in a hotel and you don't have access to a kitchen, don't write off the food markets. Mm-hmm. There's so much wonderful food that oh, can be sure. eaten on the spot or taken away. You can consume wine out in public. I don't think you can do that in, in the States, but that's no problem in Paris, is it? Well, I, I don't think that it is. I never really put that one to the test. I know, but, it's, but it's, it would be a... I I've seen a right. lot of people sitting around enjoying yeah. a bottle of uh, sharing yeah. a bottle of wine with a view of the Eiffel Tower. I'm Rick Steves. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Marjorie R. Williams, and she's the co-author of the Markets of Paris guidebook. Marjorie, you say there's 70 different open-air markets. How are they distinct, or is, is an open-air market basically an open-air market, and you should just go to the, the one that's handy to your sightseeing or hotel? No, they're very different. In fact, at the beginning of researching this book, I thought I'm going to be looking at 90 different food markets. How will I ever keep those straight in my mind? But as it turned out, it was very easy to do so because each market has its own personality. So depending which market you'll be going to, there's some very posh neighborhoods. So for example, I'm thinking of the 16th arrondissement, which as you mentioned means neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's a very a high-class neighborhood, and the market there reflects it. One of my very favorite mm. markets is right there. It's called Marche President Wilson. And it's some of the highest quality fruits and vegetables. And there's a man there who's well known as, as for his vegetables, his heirloom vegetables. So the market reflects the character of the neighborhood. I think that's interesting. That's right. I, I love Rue Claire, and that's kind of a, a wealthy mm-hmm. neighborhood, and you have a wealthy that's market. Right. You could go to an immigrant neighborhood, and, and, and you can go to a, like an Arab neighborhood and have, mm-hmm. have a market with a whole different flavors. That's right. And in fact, I encourage people, if you've been to some of the markets, Try other markets. Don't keep right. going back to the same ones. And especially some of the markets in the outer arrondissements. That's where there's more of an ethnic mix, more of the immigrant communities living Great there. Great advice. And you can get there by metro very easily. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Patrick's calling in from Indian Town, Florida. Patrick, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. Hello, uh, Marjorie. Hello there. Yeah, I was just thinking of the times we've been in Paris and... Probably my favorite food market is uh, the Rue Mouffetard. And um, mm-hmm. I think the great thing about that is even if you don't buy much to eat there, it's such a great experience just walking down the narrow road and uh, checking out the different um, booths and things like that. I just love that place. It's not too far from the Jardin de Luxembourg. Marjorie, that's one of the street markets that you were talking about? That's right. And and it is one of the oldest street markets around. And it's right in the in the uh, fifth arrondissement. And that's one of the markets that if you go there on a weekend, you can often see musicians, an accordion player, a cabaret singer, and there are even sing-alongs that happen at the base of the street in Groove Mouffetard. Very, very lively scene. I didn't put that I didn't know that was a regular thing. I thought it was just sort of an accident. And that really capped my market experience beautifully. Rue Mouffetard, okay. Patrick, when you walked down the street, were you sampling the food? Were you doing any, any shopping, or were you just window shopping? Mostly window shopping, but we did get cheese, I think, and several other things. You know, and went and had a little picnic somewhere. Another point that I'm picturing it well along Rue Mouffetard and remembering the cafes, that there's several cafes along Rue Mouffetard, and that's, that is very common at the markets and different from our experience, at least my experience mm. here in the States at markets. You don't see cafes, but there they're very much incorporated with the market. So mm-hmm. it's easy to do your shopping, and as, whenever you want to break and do some people watching or just sip another cafe, there are plenty of beautiful cafes to choose from. Oh, I'd say on your list as a tourist, just have a, your favorite kind of coffee outdoors, sitting on the beautiful mm-hmm. wicker chairs, enjoying the mm-hmm. market scene. Go in the morning when it's, when it's really lively. Patrick, thanks for your call. Oh, well, thank you.
Yes. Thank you, Patrick. And Courtney's on the line in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. Hi, yes, thank you. Hi, Marjorie. I am going to Paris with my family. We have three children, um, a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And we'll be staying in the Latin Quarter. I have spent very little time in Paris, and so we're looking, but we love farmer's markets. We love to explore that kind of thing. So I'm looking for suggestions with kids. Well, for a food market in the vicinity, you're, you're very lucky because there are several different markets in the Latin Quarter, but one that you might especially enjoy is along Boulevard Raspail. And on Sunday, it's an organic market. It's all organic. It's open a couple of other days of the week, and it's a regular food market. It's not all organic. But the reason I mention that is that there is a terrific set of offerings there of food, and you can put together items for a picnic and go to the Luxembourg Gardens, hmm. which is close by, and that's always a lot of fun for children of all ages. Marjorie, how do you spell that market? Raspail, so it's R-A-S-P-A-I-L. And it's in the 6th arrondissement, but it, it's not far off from the Latin Quarter. Does that make sense, Courtney? That does. What a great opportunity to take your children to Paris and have that just love of life experience on the streets of that great city. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We've got a little tiny hole-in-the-wall place to stay that we mm. found a little apartment for rent. We'll mm-hmm. squeeze in there, but we'll be close to stuff. Choose one, choose one bakery that has nice pastries and make it your regular spot so you can drop <laughs> by each day and they'll get to know you and your kids will have fun choosing different kinds of delightful fresh pastries. Another one of my favorite markets, Courtney, is called Place Mange, and that is in the 5th arrondissement in the Latin Quarter. And that has a very charming neighborhood feel to it. It's a little square mm-hmm. with a fountain at the center, and children often play with the fountain. And very, very good quality and produce and other foods. How do you spell that one? M-O-N-G-E? M-O-N-G-E. Mange. All right. Good Plus advice. Mange. Courtney, good luck with your trip. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. Have fun. Will do. Bye. And Marcy emails us from Newbury Park in California, and Marcy writes, Last year, my daughter and I visited Paris and fully enjoyed the Marché de Aligre. A-L-I-G-R-E, where a very nice produce seller gave us a huge bunch of mouth-watering green grapes just because he thought we looked happy together. We had a picnic with cheese, grapes, and a baguette on the promenade planté in the rain with two umbrellas protecting our bounty. What a delightful image. Do any of those places resonate with you, Marjorie? The Marche Alligres is one of my favorites. I think of it as three markets in one at that market because it's. we were talking about the different categories earlier. There's an outdoor a street market, and there's also a covered market at the center of it, and there's a flea market part of the market as well. So you can see three different types of markets at once along Rue Alig. Mm. And yeah, it's more of an Arab market, and it's very spirited. And the vendors will often slice open the ripest-looking mm. melons and oranges and, and spear a piece of it and stick it out at you so that you can taste it. <laughs> They're very so generous fun. with their samples. And then Marcy knew well enough about the uh, Promenade Planté, which is an elevated train line that's no longer used and turned into a, a long, skinny green park. And they went up there and enjoyed the nice benches and locals who were doing their jogging and a nice aerial view of the city. And they enjoyed the uh, bounty of their market visit. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Marjorie R. Williams, who, along with Dixon Long, is the author of Markets of Paris. Marjorie, let's just finish our interview. If you can take us to a... We were talking about a cafe. You've got a little rickety table, and, and you're on the curb with all sorts of market activity around you. A little bird just landed on the wicker back of the empty chair next to you, and it's awaiting the crumb of your croissant. And where would we be, and what time of day is it, and, and what would we feel and see and smell? Oh, I've, I'm transported there easily by your description. Well, I imagine this rickety cafe right across from the column at the at the Bastille. Mm. And so, of course, a very historic spot in Paris. And Place I, de la I'm, Bastille. Place de la Bastille, yes, and that's in the 11th arrondissement. And markets are a feast for the senses. So let me just paint the scene a little bit for you from from this cafe view. For one thing, you see people strolling with their carts. The residents come with their big shopping carts. And you hear the carts just rolling along the streets. And then you see the tarps that hang over the different stalls. And as you get closer, you might see mounds of fresh avocados and asparagus or whatever is in season piled high on the different vendors' stands. 
And as you get even closer, more of the smells might come to you. And at the Bastille, at that particular marché, there's some wonderful cheese cellars. So I, I'm picturing, imagining, smelling these pungent cheeses mm. and maybe some of the perfumed strawberries, the garagettes, which are in season in the springtime. Or maybe the oysters. There are a lot of very good oysters for sale uh, at this market, as with other markets. Oh, and the merchant that brings you away from one set of strawberries and over to the torpedo-shaped garagettes that really do yeah. smell better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, this I've is never heard that description. That's great. I love it. Well, clearly, you are passionate about markets. Your book I is am. beautiful. Marjorie R. Williams, thank you for sharing uh, this delightful angle of a delightful city. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. And bon appetit. Whether they travel in big cities or desolate expanses, from time to time our listeners send us a haiku poem about the impressions and sights they've experienced in their travels. You'll find a link to send us your own travel haiku in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are some recent examples we thought you'd enjoy. Diana Turner from New Orleans sends us this haiku about an unexpected dinner in Morocco. Stuck in Marrakesh, open the unknown tangine, eat uncertainty. Matt Harmon from Charleston, West Virginia, wrote this haiku after a jeep tour of a volcano in Iceland. Red volcanic rocks heat ham and cheese sandwiches, snowy crater shines. And Jenny Bright from Greenville, Wisconsin, uses a haiku to describe the first time she ate rabbit for lunch with two families in France. A jumble of arms at a circular table. Grandma wants the head! And she adds this impression of Paris. Beyond the surface, see what we long to see, our own movable feast. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to Gretchen Straub for reading today's travel haiku and to the Radio Foundation in New York for technical help. You can listen again to each week's show and look up information about our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Italy, through France, and beyond, one small group at a time. We're featuring tours of Venice, Florence, and Rome, the heart of Italy, Village Italy, South Italy, and Sicily, Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.